0: This is the third week now that we have been in a series called, What is Truth? There's a conversation that took place between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, as you, some of you who have been here know, and, and at the end of that conversation, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? And we recognize that we live in a culture where truth is in crisis. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would turn to our theme verse for this particular series, which is found in John 14:6. Jesus in giving an answer, Jesus in answering begins to describe for us that truth emanates from him when he says this, I am the way, I am the way, he said, I am the truth, in other words, everything that is true within the world emanates from me, and I am the life. And within this, he begins to give us directions by which we can find the truth, we can live in the truth, and that we can thrive in life in the truth. Today I'm talking about the t- topic of biblical truth and human sexuality, and I want to credit Dr. James Bradford for his study on how physical bodies relate to God. And in this series, we have been approaching it from the aspect of the why behind the what. We hear the what so often as, you know, what is right, what is wrong, and everybody's opinion on this. But I believe that in our study of the word that we can get to the aspect of the why our things the way they are why does God ask what he does of us of us and today we want to approach this subject of biblical truth and human sexuality and we're going to attempt to answer what does the Bible say about human sexuality now I I need you to know for those of you that are here today and those of you that are watching online I will keep this as PG as possible understanding that there are multiple ages that are represented both here and that may be watching online as well as a different comfort level depending on your families and your background with the subject matter that we are going to be approaching today. Yet the Word of God has something to say. And I need you to also understand this. I approach this topic today with both biblical conviction but also personal compassion. And so would you join me in prayer this morning as we prepare our hearts? Father, your truth is something that we desperately need And you lead us and you guide us into that. I pray that through the leading and the anointing of your Holy Spirit that you would address each of us at just the level that you desire to do so. And that at the end of this you will be glorified in your phenomenal redeeming love. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me start with some overall observations. Number one, the Christian faith holds to the highest view of the human body. Now... What we are going to be talking about today, the way that I want to approach this, is I want to approach it from the aspect of what does God think about our bodies? What does he believe about them? What has he created into them? And so it's important for us to know that. Now, I don't know what you think about your body, but I do want you to know that it's very important for you to know what God thinks about your body And unlike most religious systems or philosophical systems, we don't worship the human body. But Christianity does hold to the highest view that you will find anywhere of the value of the body. In fact, God's guidelines for our bodies are designed for wholeness and thriving. This is the foundation that we're going to be building our thoughts upon today, that God's guidelines are designed for our wholeness and for our thriving. He wants you to be whole, and He wants you to thrive. Now, how many of you, when you were kids, had parents that told you to look both ways before you crossed the street? You want to know how I know they did it? Because you're still alive today. There was this recognition that if you disobey that, your life was going to be in jeopardy. Or you wanted to touch a hot oven and they told you, don't do that because they recognized that it would burn and leave scars. Or how many of them told you not to chew gum that you found underneath the table of a restaurant? All of this was done because they wanted to protect you. They loved you enough to put boundaries around you for your own protection. So the first thing we want to look at today are what are the God's guidelines for our body, the guidelines for our behavior, that he intends to keep us healthy and to help us thrive in life. Out of a number of things that can keep us from health and from thriving in life, sexual immorality distorts and defeats those purposes. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, and then he follows this up with beginning to give us a very specific list of what these thoughts are that comes from evil hearts. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. And you will note that murder and theft and false testimony and slandering are all violating things. They distort and they defeat. And in the midst of this list of destructive things, God adds adultery, which is unfaithfulness to your marriage covenant to your husband or to your wife. And sexual immorality, which would be other forms of sexual activity outside of marriage. And the reason he does that is because he knows that there is something that is distorting. There's something that is defeating about the human condition when these things come out of the evil in our hearts and they begin to dominate our behavior and they begin to dominate our thoughts. And that's why Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4: it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. God has in mind when he sets the guidelines for the use of our bodies, your wholeness and your vitality and the ability for him to be able to accomplish everything that he desires in you. He says that it's important for us to learn self-control so that you can use your body in ways that are holy and honorable. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 18, he starts off with this word, flee. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been in a place where somebody yells, run, but this is kind of the, the theme and the passion by which this word is, flee. Now, our culture is running towards sexual immorality, but God says, run away from it as if it is a danger to your life. Flee from sexual immorality. All the other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, we have seen the lot, and this honestly can be a rather puzzling verse. Why would he say that? Why would he say that most other sins against God? or most other sins that we commit are against God or other people because most of the time when there's a sin involved, we are victimizing somebody or something in some way. But when he comes to this, he said, listen, all those sexual sin, which certainly can make victims of other people, it always involves sinning against your own body. And to understand why he would say this, then we need to build a foundation of the theology of the way that God sees your body today. Because this will help us understand the uniqueness of why sexual sin is a sin against your own body. So today I'd like to finish this time with a couple of thoughts. One of them being, what is the theology of God at creation as it relates to your body? The second one being, what does Christ himself mean to you when he inhabits your body after salvation? The first being the theology of our bodies in creation. If you start way back in Genesis chapter 1... And we think about our bodies and and that creation. It says in verse 27 of Genesis 1, So God created mankind in his own image. I don't know how you feel about yourself today. I don't know how you came to be. But you need to know this today. You are not an accident. You are here on purpose God created you in his own image. Now, an image is if you were to to hold a mirror up, you would be able to see a reflection of yourself. And, And I'm not saying that we are reflections of God or that we are God, but we have been uniquely created in his image, which means that we have the capacity to bear the traits of his character, and we have the capacity to know him personally. That is what being created in his image means. And right from the very beginning, the very beginning of creation, he brings our bodies into the equation. And he says this, God created mankind in his own image. And and for those of you that that like to study the Hebrewic aspect of it, there's a a poetic parallelism that, that begins to take place here. He said he created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So male... And female, he created them. Here are our bodies, male or female. You cannot separate your body from your personhood. God's word, the Christian view of your body, integrates your body into the entire being of who you are. It is your spirit, it is your soul, and it is your body that make up who you are that God has created. And so he says that you were created in the image of God, spirit, soul, and body, and male and female bodies make up this image that God brings to be, the totality of how we are created. And since God did it this way, it means that our bodies are designed to be valued, not violated. Your body... Is of immense value because God saw fit to put his fingerprints all over you when he created you. It's part of your personhood. And so when we reduce anybody's body, anybody's personhood, to just an object like pornography, it looks at a person's body not as a person but as an object for self gratification or whenever you would just abuse somebody else sexually, whenever you reduce a person just to a body, just to an object, you are removing the personhood from the design that God made when they created them. There's a quote that says this, lust is like cutting off the head and pulling out the heart and wanting what is left. It's making objects out of people, and God never intended any of you to be just an object. He created you, body, soul, and spirit. Beth feltner Jones wrote in a book called Faithful, and she says this, for Christians, women's, women aren't property or baby makers, and men aren't just lust machines or power mongers. You see, God has a higher calling for you because of your spirit, because of your soul, and because of your body. And notice that he says this in an intentional parallel, the structure. He says, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. In other words, clearly, from the very beginning of time, God associates your gender, which he gave to you, as a reflection of who He is, lived through you. So somehow, in our maleness or in your femaleness, it is the intention of God to be related by who He has made you and the gender that He has made you to reflect His glory more fully through you. So that means, according to Scripture, our gender is not fluid or subject to choice but it is the result of God's creative design when He made you. Now, we know this scientifically. We are born a girl with XX chromosome or a boy with XY chromosome. And we live in a world today where in our culture, and I am going to, I'm going to squeeze into one small statement something that we could spend weeks about. But sometimes in our pain and in our brokenness and in things that have happened to us or in unmet needs, people become in a great struggle trying to feel as if because of things that may have happened to them, disconnected with their soul, disconnected with their spirit, disconnected with their bodies. And sometime that brokenness... And sometimes that pain and unmet needs can become sexualized in our lives. And that is one of the reasons why there is such confusion today in our world as it relates to gender identity and homosexuality. Because we get away from God's plan and we begin to feel like, well, I just don't feel like what God has created me to be. God's plan is to bring wholeness again. God's plan is to reunite and reintegrate you because your gender is holy unto the Lord. And so your gender is not to be tampered with. It is an intentional and holy act of our creating God to make you who you are. And out of righteousness, we honor him. The Assemblies of God, to whom we at Grace Assembly belong to, has a position paper that you are more than welcome to go on to our general counsel website and read. It's on the subject of transgenderism and transsexuality and gender identity, and there is one line of that paper which I'm going to read but because it, I think it speaks to us, but I would encourage you if you have the opportunity to read it all. And that line says this, Our gendered bodies serve as testimonies to our responsibility to live as God's image. In other words, who God has made you and who he has made me, it is my responsibility to live that creation out to his glory and my gender becomes holy under the Lord. It's not just my choice, but it is my calling. To live out God's image and I embrace the holiness of the gender that God gave to me biologically to his glory and to his honor and the scripture then goes on to unpack in the very next verse even further when God says to them in verse 28 God blessed them and he said to them be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it being fruitful It's God speaking here of giving us the ability in marriage, in the intimate union of a man and woman, to possibly bear children and to reproduce. Now, I would like to tie that verse back into the creative processes of God who have said to us that we are made in His image, And so in the creativity of God, He has built into our function as men and women in marriage the ability that we can live out His creative process in reproducing and the creation of children. We begin to look at that even as a holy act under the Lord, representing who He is. And so in some ways, this is part of God as Creator, letting us live out His image so that we can recreate repopulate now this is a really important statement because what that means is this, sexual relations are God's idea oh I thought somebody would say hallelujah to that now I don't know how you grew up but in the way that I grew up, we grew up in such a conservative home that there were generations of Christians that grew up thinking that sex was wrong, it was shameful, you shouldn't talk about it I believe we're reaping some of the rewards of that in churches today because we haven't talked about what God designed. But you need to know that this is God's idea. What a wonderful God we serve. It's a divine design. Unfortunately, what happens when God's divine design comes in contact with culture that believes differently, what it ends up is that rather than wholeness, we end up in a world full of shame. And shame becomes associated with this. Shame afflicted humanity after Adam and Eve's rebellion against God in Genesis 3. In fact, God had a plan that the sexual act would be part of reproducing and the pleasure and the human dynamic of a man and woman in the covenant of marriage to one another. But it wasn't until after sin entered that shame entered. Isn't that something? Where sin is, shame is. Where sin enters, shame enters. And into that scene, Adam and Eve suddenly felt naked. And had to cover themselves up. And that this is what sin always does. It always leads to distort and to destroy what God intended for something to be good. And so it says to us in Scripture, So God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. Now I want you to listen to this. He sent His Son in a body. Out of all of the ways that God could have reached you and I, he chose to send Jesus, born as a baby, cloaked him in a body. And in that body, he begins to tell us just how important our bodies are to him as created beings. But it was in that body 33 years later that Jesus hung on the cross, probably entirely naked, where he was exposed to the shaming powers of the world as they mocked him and as they made fun of him and as they ridiculed him. And he did this so that the guilt of sin and the power of shame could be broken and released in us today. He took our shame upon him in his body so our bodies could be released from the shame of which we have lived in. What a great redeeming God we have. Some of us here today, and some of you that are watching online right now have had a fair amount of sexual failure and immorality in your past. But here I am to tell you today this, the most important message of this is that God has come to redeem. God has come to deliver from the shame. God has come to make something brand new he is not clubbing you over the head today he's not telling you how much he hates you he is saying to you I hung on the cross in shame to take away your shame and to make you brand new and I will start something brand new in you if you'll just give me that opportunity and so in chapter 2 of Genesis God gives us the context of, of, of which is the amazing things that take place in the physical intimacy between a man and a woman And he tells us in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. In other words, this is why, men, you don't still live in your mom's basement after you get married. Sorry for anybody that may have offended. But there is a joining of a new relationship that moves into responsibility. And he says, and united with your wife, you become one flesh. Now this he's talking about as a physical statement. But this Hebrew term, one flesh, is way deeper than just talking about sexual intercourse. In fact, the layers of this word in Hebrew are amazing because what it begins to talk about, uh, the aspect that it refers to a bonding act. It refers to an act that not only is it sexually intimate, but it is an adhesive act. It is something that binds a man and a woman in marriage. It's like a spiritual super glue that unites them, and they are united not just sexually, not just physically, but they are united emotionally. They are united spiritually. There is a deep connection that goes on and is nurtured throughout life in this. And that is what he says when you become one flesh. It is a lifelong deepening union between a man and his wife. Marriage is designed to be a one flesh relationship between a man and a woman through sexual union. Through the 40-some years that I've been involved in ministry, I can't tell you how many conversations I have had with individuals who said, I have come to Christ, but I have so much stuff and, and junk in the background of my life that I don't know how God could possibly love me. I don't know how he could possibly redeem me. Many of them have described a lifestyle lived with multiple sexual partners and and many of them seem to use the same terminology as they get to that place where they said, I feel as if I lost a piece of myself. In each one of those experiences. I gradually was losing the ability to bond with anybody because the pieces were torn. It was almost like you take two pieces of paper and you glue them together and then later on you try to rip them apart, trying to maintain the whole and it is impossible. There's jagged edges as things are fragmented and left behind. But today the good news is that God is a restorer. God makes all things new. God can bring to you a wholeness that seems as if it's been torn apart. God said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in that, describes to us that we need a Savior. And He is able and willing to make us brand new. So this bonding, life-uniting act necessitates the protection of a lifelong covenant this is why it is appropriate. Mom and dads, you can teach your children this. It is appropriate to tell them and to teach them to say, I won't give my body to you unless you are willing to pledge your loyalty to me for the rest of our lives. Because in marriage, we become one flesh. And outside of marriage, this one flesh union, God calls sin. Sin. And he does this for your wholeness and because he wants you to thrive and for your protection of the integrity that he has created into you spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and physically. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, and you think that he's talking about marriage until you get into this a little bit deeper. But here's what he says in, in 531, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. And he follows that verse up with this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. What he is saying here is that this one flesh bonding act is really a picture of the way Christ wants to interact with his church. It's the relationship that Christ has with each of us as we yield our life to Him. Listen, when you receive Christ, you're not just asking Him to forgive you of your sin. You're asking Him to come into your life and make you brand new, and that in partnership with Him, you will continue to live in a way that brings honor and glory to Him by the holiness and righteousness of the way that you honor the relationship that you have with Him. Jesus, in His 33 years on earth, never married physically or humanly, But he was on another mission by which he said to us who are here today and those who are watching online, the church is my bride and I'm out to win a bride. I'm out to purify my bride. I'm out to win her heart and I'm out to walk through life with her. That is my mission and today we get to be included in that. That is how valuable the body of Christ is, the church. He made a covenant with us. And he invited us into relationship with him. And marriage is the best picture we have on earth of this covenant that he makes with us. So that brings us from the place of our bodies at creation to the last thought, our bodies in Christ. I want to return to the thought that we jumped into in 1 Corinthians 6 when when Paul was pointing out that sexual sin is different from other sins because it's a sin against our own body. And we have already touched on this morning the fact that not only do our bodies have value, not only are our genders holy, not only is sexual intimacy given exclusively in the covenant of marriage that protects and provides physical and spiritual and emotional bonding between a man and a woman, but it also goes on to say in this that God has eternal plans for your body. God has eternal plans for your body. Now, this this was interesting because it was being written to the Greeks in Corinth, and they didn't believe that the body had any value. Do you know that if you live in a culture that doesn't believe the body has value, you can do anything you want? And so they didn't believe that the body had value. They thought it was unimportant that the body was going to be done away with someday. So what does it matter what I do in my body? if it's not important anyway. And Paul tells them, you're thinking wrongly. God has an eternal plan for your body. He tells us in 1 Corinthians six fourteen, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. When Jesus rose from the dead, he rose with a resurrected body that he had been given as a baby by the father to be raised in and we know that because he still had the scars on his hands and his feet. Paul is saying, listen, God is not gonna eliminate your body. Some of you are going, oh, great. I was hoping for something better. I do believe that our resurrected bodies will look substantially different. I'm gonna be much taller. I'm gonna be like Mark Freeman tall. Either that or we'll all be the same height. But the fact of the matter is, if our bodies were not important, that He would not resurrect them. So there's something eternal about our bodies. And in the middle of this, it says, "God who created your body has placed immense value on it. He's going to raise it someday. When we stand at the graveside of individuals that we are burying, I, I say this often, especially those, for those who are Christians, I said, "This body is going to be resurrected in a brand new dimension." Because that body was important. And so if God sees the body so much that he created it, it's holy, your gender is holy, that even when it dies, it may turn to dust, but I'm going to put it all back together again and I'm going to resurrect that body, then what we have to understand today is that your bodies in Christ are the Lord's. You belong to the Lord. And he goes on in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, Do you not know? that your bodies are members of Christ himself. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Apparently, this is what was happening as some in that church were doing, thinking that their bodies were not important. And so they're thinking, who cares what I do with my body? And Paul goes, never do you not know That he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. And then he repeats, goes back to Genesis 2 again, and he says this, For it is said, the two shall be one flesh. So Paul is saying that when you belong to the Lord, when you've invited him into your life, not only is there a salvation that takes place, and the freedom from sin, and the freedom from shame, but you become a member of the body of Christ. This is is why communion is so important to us when we hold in our hands the symbol of the body of the Lord and the symbol of the blood of the Lord and we unite ourselves again in memory of that sacrifice and so in the middle of a culture that is celebrating sexual impurity everywhere today I need you to know that we as believers Come to an understand that our bodies were not only created as part of God's personhood of you, but that you belong to the Lord in a profound way and that when you face sexual temptation, you need to remember that your body belongs to the Lord and that you are holy. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to say more about the value of our body when he says this, Our bodies become temples of the Holy Spirit. Your body becomes the dwelling place of God. We enter into the church because we recognize that there is something that happens in this sanctuary where the Spirit of the Lord begins to do a work. Do you know that you can walk out of this building, but you are still a church? Because the presence of the Holy Spirit himself at your invitation indwells you. And as a result of that, we need to treat our bodies with the same respect and righteousness and holiness that we would treat the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So important is your body that he says, I choose to make it a dwelling place. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. Does that not go against our culture today? It says, I'm my own, I can do whatever I want. And in the middle of this, in the design of God, he says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. On the cross, he bought your soul. He bought your spirit, and he bought your body. And it is of incredible value to him. And that becomes the theological view that God gives to us as we begin to relate, how then do I live in this world? Well, understanding, first of all, the high value that God places upon your body. And at the deepest levels where failure and violation and sin have taken place, he says, I am a restoring God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, a little bit before the verses we just read, it says this, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God all of that is outside of God's design and it distorts and it's destroying And the devil's agenda is to destroy the image of God in you by making you greedy, destroying human healthy relationships, and leading you into sexual sin. And then Paul says these words, and that is what some of you were. Were. You would expect at that point that Paul would then follow that up with words like this. That's why God hates you. And that's why I hate you. Because we hear those kind of words all over in our culture today. Let me tell you something, church. God does not hate you, nor should we hate anybody else. Instead, he said but you were to be washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. We have been changed by the power of a living God. And this is why there is hope for every person in this world who is broken, who the past may have been difficult for them. It doesn't say that those who fit these categories of sin that you have no hope. It says... You don't have to be that way forever because an intersection with the grace of Jesus Christ changes everything. But you were washed, you were justified by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worship team, if you'd please come. So we are left with this wonderful contrast in Scripture where Paul said, some of you were, but now you are this, that Jesus is the difference between the then and now. Listen, we are loaded with testimonies in our church about who I used to be until I met Jesus, and then what he has done. Some of you were lost, and now you're found, Jesus is the difference between hopeless and hope. He's the difference between sinful and sanctified. He's the difference between now I am justified and now I am no longer subject to the judgment of God because of what Jesus Christ has done to remove the shame that this world has created. And so that's what God offers you today, to be a brand new creature. Doesn't that verse mean something different now? in light of the value that he placed upon our bodies. So why does he give us the guidelines? Because your, ba- your bodies matter. He's invested a lot in his creative aspect of his nature to make you who you are. And out of holiness, we return to praise him and honor him for who he is. Would you stand with me?